Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And we are wrapping up our heinous hardware week. It's been a week. Well, today I'm bringing a real doozy Mm. of heinous hardware. We are going to cover today what is commonly known as the toolbox killers. I'm not sure I'm going to want your hardware today, (laughs) Charnel. You are going to send my hardware back today. (laughs) Because just in the name, I think you can figure out that it is every bit as heinous as it sounds. Tools. I'm, tools. Yeah, I'm not liking tools. what I'm hearing. These two the tools. tools use some tools, and it's not good. Yeah. They end up having five victims in total that we know of. So those are the five that I'm going to focus mm-hmm. on today. And a special thanks to Wes for bringing this case to our attention. Yes, thanks, Wes. A big shout out, though, real quick to our Patreon members because they got a outtake episode yes hope they liked it yes they got a bonus episode Mm -hmm. with another one coming soon so if you're not a patreon member and you want more of us that there's more there's plenty more (laughs) that's for sure and we keep everything very reasonable we have tiers at three dollars five dollars and ten dollars a month so it's not like we're panhandling for a ridiculous (laughs) amount of money for help for research but there it is very reasonable and the case we just i really liked that case our bonus episode case yeah Yeah, me too all right well let's just jump into this one though for all of our other listening lovelies oh i like that that was good write that one down okay Making note. All right. Let's, I'm going to first start off talking about it, each tool separately. Okay. okay. So they have so specific they have tools some, they use. They, no. No, yeah. I was using the oh, word the tool tools to mean a jackass. The, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, I'm going to talk Various about Various tools going on today. <laughs> right. Each, each jackass first. Okay. To give you some background on them and then we'll talk about their ridiculousness. Okay. So my sources for this, which are always linked in the show notes, of course, mm-hmm. but I was able to... Get a lot from ABC News. They had some really good coverage of this. Uh, from Murderpedia has several really good Love articles. Love me some Murderpedia. Yeah, there were so many articles to choose from from there, and um, so a couple other websites. Like I said, they will be all of it will be linked in the show notes. So have no fear, you can find those sources there. First, we have Lawrence. Bitteker. He was born in Pittsburgh. Bleh. I always have a hard time with that word. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It is a tongue twister. It is. On September 27th, 1940, he was actually adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker. So that's how he got his last um, name shortly after he was born. His dad worked in aircraft factories, which means they had a lot of moves from Pennsylvania to Florida and then Ohio and finally settling in California. I feel like happens a lot in our cases. It really does. A rootless childhood really stuck for Lawrence. Mm -hmm. He dropped out of school in 1957 after several brushes with police and juvenile authorities. So really right from the get-go, he has not been an upstanding citizen. He was arrested in Long Beach for auto theft, a hit and run, and evading arrest. So he's got quite a, a long 
history of crime. He does. Trouble. And he was in like a youth authority facility. Okay. Until he was 19 years old. Oh, wow. So that shapes a person as well. It really does. Within days of his parole in California, Bitteker was picked up by FBI agents in Louisiana charged with violating like an interstate motor vehicle theft act and convicted on that charge in august of 59 so he was sentenced to serve 18 months at a federal reformery in oklahoma and his behavior there soon earned him a transfer to the u.s medical center in springfield missouri where doctors released him after he had severed nope what did he sever (laughs) no he served (laughs) wow two-thirds of his sentence that is quite a difference just so you know the severing starts already Oh, okay. So, yes, he served. He was next arrested in Los Angeles for robbery in December 1960, and he was convicted for that in 1961. Then he was slapped with an intermediate sentence of 1 to 15 years in a state prison, which... It's a vast... uh, That's a variety. That's a big difference there. All right. Could be 1, could Could be be 15. There's no way to know. know. Yeah. (laughs) What the hell? So he has a colorful past. Yeah, yeah. But in 1961, a psychiatric examination found Bitteker to be manipulative and having considerable concealed hostility, despite also having superior intelligence. He was diagnosed as a borderline psychotic and basically paranoid. Okay. Mm-hmm. The following year, a second psychiatrist noted Bitteker's poor control of impulsive behavior, of course, and these diagnoses notwithstanding, he was paroled. In late 1963, after serving barely one-sixth of his possible maximum sentence. So you know that one to 15 years? Turns out it was two. (laughs) That's mystery solved. Yep. Even with two different psychiatric examinations that were like, yeah, he's psychotic. And they're like, it's two Uh, years. Like, yeah, we'll give him you're two. Fine. Freedom never seemed to really agree with Bitteker. Two months after his conditioned release, he was jailed again for a parole violation and suspicion of robbery. Another parole violation sent him back to prison in October 1964. So literally, he'd only been out for a, almost a year. It was a little less. It was like oh, mm-hmm. 10, 11 months. Then he was interviewed by a psychiatrist in 1966 where Bitteker confessed that stealing made him feel important, and then curiously added that his crimes occurred under circumstances that were not totally my fault, Hmm. which was like, "Mm, okay, so he got slapped with yet again another diagnosis of borderline psychosis, and authorities released him yet again. Can, Can I just say, I'm thinking in my head as I'm listening, how many times mental health um, was ignored. issues was ignored during that time back in the day mm-hmm. over and so over many again times. because it wasn't seen as a real situation mm-hmm. it was not recognized no it wasn't so he gets released yet again this is now his third diagnosis by three separate psychiatrists okay for borderline psychosis and being psychotic essentially mm-hmm. and they're like yeah we'll let you out <laughs> so they did they did only to find him with yet again another parole violation in June 1967. One month later, Bitteker was tagged for theft 
and leaving the scene of a hit-and-run accident again. He already said he likes to steal stuff. He did. I mean, he, he put blatantly it out there. was like, I love it. Yeah. I feel powerful. I feel good. I feel special. This is amazing. Yes. What else can I steal? You can't even be mad at the guy. No. And he's just, you know, fast and the furiousing it all mm-hmm. over the place with these cars. Watch out, Vin Diesel. Right. Vinny, he's coming Step for you. Step aside. All right, so he has yet another hit-and-run accident, and he was convicted on those charges. He drew another five-year sentence, but he was paroled after serving less than three years. So in April 1970, he was arrested for burglary and parole violation in March 1971. They let him out in 1970, arrested again in 71. Was he a charmer of some kind? Because it seems like every time... He gets caught. They're like, I'm going to give you another chance. No. It was just like this blatant (laughs) neglect of the system. Mm -hmm. Just, ah, it was a hit and run. It's fine. Yeah. So, yeah. So, here we are in April 1970. He was arrested again for a parole violation in March 1971. He was convicted on both counts of leaving the scene in the hit and run and auto theft in October receiving an additional sentence of six months to 15 years. You gotta these, love it. I can't with these sentences. Could be six months. Could be 15 years. Do they just, we like, don't roll know. a dice? Like, eh, yeah. it's eight months. Let's see. The California prison system at that time was in such disarray. Oh, my God. You what? don't say. I am shocked. Color me the color of shock. <laughs> Which color do you think that is, by the way? I'm picturing... A bright yellow. Oh, see, I had a purple coming to mind, like a oh, vibrant purple. Vibrant. Yeah. Just, it, it is something bright for sure. For like, sure. <gasps> yeah. Purple and yellow together. Whatever the color of an intake breath is. Yeah. That's what yeah. it is. Prison systems in disarray. And Bitteker was freed after three years. So here we are. We're at 1974. And his next crime began a simple shoplifting, shoving. <laughs> this I can appreciate. Shoving a steak down the front of his pants mm. in a circle supermarket. I can't even be mad. Me I mean, neither, because I love, love steaks so me much. T-bone. If I didn't have the money for it, I can't say as though I wouldn't myself. Is with that me. a steak in your pants, or are you just happy to see me? Why? It's a T-bone. <laughs> it's a T-bone, sir. <laughs> and also, I don't like you that much. Actually, so. with some of my own clients, I have heard worse shoved down their pants in stores. So Absolutely. I won't judge on a steak. Can't get mad at a guy for wanting a steak. No, no. However, his, his little meat down the front of extra meat in the pants... <laughs> Incident. It escalated. Are we still talking about the steak? We are. Yeah. Okay. I said extra meat. So he he multiplies the meat in his pants, mm-hmm. and it escalated to attempted murder in the parking lot. Holy cow! Yeah, because unfortunately, Bitteker stabbed the employee who tried to stop him. Oh. Next time, dude, just let him have the steak. Here you can have it back. Right. Takes out of pants. <laughs> and way tidies. Do you want me to put it back Brush, in the cooler? Brushes it against his body as much as he can, and it makes this horrible. <laughs> yes. Like, picture the sound, like, where it's just going. Oh, <laughs> Here, let me put that back in the cooler for you, pal. Slaps it down. <laughs> <laughs> that one got tears. I got a tear. Oh, <laughs> so I would have just been like, you know what? You take that. And you, you go. You grill that up. So he's st- yeah. <laughs> take your Medium pube steak rare, please. and yeah. just <laughs> have at it. So he stabbed the poor worker, and I couldn't find if I. I think the worker lived. It didn't sound like 
It was because it was just attempted murder. So oh, okay. he lives. He's, he does live. He's fine. Probably can't look at a steak again, but no. he's totally fine. <laughs> for sure. Talk about trauma. I know. I would be devastated if somebody ruined steak for me. It was a poor poor kid probably just trying to do his job at the grocery yes. store, too, or something. You of know. course. The manager was probably like, Get stop that guy. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Yeah, that's horrible. I mean, it yes, is horrible. That is what it probably happened. But that escalated to a level I wasn't expecting yep. so that well and so what it resulted in is forensic psychiatrist dr robert markman examined him before his tr- trial and rejected the earlier findings of borderline psychosis he branded bitteker a classic sociopath mm. so at this point he's like we're escalating okay it. Yep. Mm-hmm. we're going up in the dsmv here mm-hmm. so markman explained to the court that Bitteker was incapable of learning to play by the rules. He would never learn by experience, and he would just keep butting his his head against the barriers of acceptable behavior. 100% give this man another PhD. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, sir, you are correct. In short, he was a hopeless case beyond any form of treatment and rehabilitation, is, is what Mark was saying. saying. Mm-hmm. And he warned that Bitteker was bound to escalate his criminal Criminal? I love it. (laughs) So he was going to escalate his criminal behavior, moving on to more serious crimes. He was a highly dangerous man with no intentional controls over his impulses, a man who could kill without hesitation or remorse. I've got to give the psychiatrists kudos here. They're kind of painting this picture as he's progressing. A golf clap. Mm -hmm. He is literally predicting Bitteker's future. Mm -hmm. All right? And Bitteker actually later reinforces this while he's in 90, 1974, while he's incarcerated and getting this new diagnosis. He tells a cellmate that someday he planned to be, quote, bigger than Manson, end quote. Oh, so he's making plans. hmm No qualms about it. Wow. That's prison psychiatrists concurred. With Dr. Markman. A 1977 jailhouse evaluation found Bitteker more than likely to commit new crimes upon his release. That should also be noted. Mm -hmm. July 1978, another psychiatrist dubbed Bitteker a sophisticated sociopath. Great. Now we're getting fancy. Mm -hmm. Now he has a cigar and a bow tie. (laughs) But still a sociopath. Yes. Whose prospects for successful parole were guarded at best. Again, the warnings were ignored, and Bitteker was released November 1978. We have all these professionals saying, no, no, not a great idea. How about we let someone yes. else out of the prison system? Yeah. Not this yeah, guy. Not this one. If you He's... need to make room in the jailhouse, let's pick the low offender, not this yeah, guy. They're Anyone saying he but will this guy. commit worse crimes, and mm-hmm. he is actually saying himself, like, I've got plans. I want to be. Like, I have a daily than... planner, yeah. and I'm writing I've wrote in. in my diary. Yes. It's going to happen. Oh, my goodness. This is, isn't it just unbelievable when you look back at these things? Yes. It really is. And especially when I think of all the people that I know today that were alive during this time. And I'm just like, let me interview you. Yeah. What was it like to just sit around and smoke your cigs and not care that people were being murdered and no one wanted to find bodies and we didn't care if we were releasing sophisticated sociopaths from prison? The evils under a sub, like on a desk. That's what I envision. It's just like discarded. Right. Right. (laughs) This old thing. All right, so that's where we're going to leave Bitteker for you. Okay, we're setting him aside. 78, that's a little bit about him. You know, 
professional after professional and was like, this guy is no good. Now we're going to move on to Roy Lewis Norris. He was born in Greenlee, Colorado on February 2nd, 1948. So he's eight years younger than Bitteker. Okay. Unlike Bitteker, Norris lived in his hometown until he was 17 when he dropped out of school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego, but in 1969, Norris spent four months in Vietnam. He never saw combat. However, he did see a lot of drugs. Mm. Specifically, and this is no surprise, marijuana mm-hmm. was his drug of choice. If we can, we're in Michigan where it's legal, so it it's hard legal. to call it yeah. a drug at this point in time, but, you know. A substance. Yeah, a substance for sure, of choice. Of course, it was widely available, so he was plenty of the plicking, mm-hmm. picking, plenty for the picking. Mm-hmm. I meant, I don't know what I said. You have some really catchy that. phrases going on today. Oh, plenty for the plicking. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! We so just... he was he was smoking a little little. Absolutely, the, he was enjoying a little Mary Jane okay. whenever he could. Back in South Carolina by November 1969. Norris attacked a female driver in downtown San Diego. He forced his way into her car and attempted rape. Oh. Yeah. It, so this kind of just came out of nowhere? Kind of no history leading up to it? It's no just like, history oh. leading up to it. Okay. This is just where he starts gotcha. with his violent behavior. We went from the Navy to doing some drugs. And now attempted rape. And, yeah, and now attempted rape. Then, so he was he was arrested for that. And then it only took three months for Norris to get arrested again because he was free on bail pending a trial for attacking the attempted rape girl, okay? Mm-hmm. When he knocked on a San Diego woman's door, he asked if he could use her telephone. You remember the days oh, of yes. doing that? Oh, my gosh. Terrifying. And horror stories yes. that have come from it. When the woman refused... Good on her. Yes. No, Kudos you may ma'am. not use my phone. He tried to break in through a living room window, then ran around back to the kitchen. Breaching a window there, he finally entered the house, but police arrived before he could harm his intended victim. Okay. Well, thank goodness. Yep. And at this point, the Navy had had enough of Norris. They were like, no, you do not meet the standard for our service. <laughs> Good for the Navy. Mm-hmm. And they rejected him. He received an administrative discharge for psychological problems. Like, that's a quote, psychological problems. Mm -hmm. After he was diagnosed as having a severe schizoid personality. Oh, boy. So basically what ends up happening is we get a severe schizoid diagnosis with a sophisticated sociopath, and they become BFFs. Oh, that is... (laughs) Yes. <laughs> right, exactly. When he was still awaiting disposition of his previous assault crimes that I've mentioned, Norris attacked another young woman in May 1970 on the campus of San Diego State College. He tackled the student from behind, clubbed her with a stone, and then slammed her head repeatedly into a concrete sidewalk, which I oh. want to be like, hello, why is he walking around on bail? For sure. He just what? has these like really spontaneous, impulsive, just acting Bursts violent. of violence yeah. against women. Yep. This time the charge was assault with a deadly weapon, I guess the stone. Sure, sure. Uh-huh. And it was finally enough to take him off the streets, you know, third time's a charm. Right. 
where he was confined to a state hospital. That's all I'm going to – I'm not even going to attempt to butcher the name of the state hospital. <laughs> it's for the greater good. I would good. like people to think that I'm mostly intelligent in the way that I'm about to say that word will really debunk Ruin that. any we'll sort of – We'll then. We don't need to – we don't need to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So he was in a state hospital as a mentally disordered sex offender. He spent five years there before being released on probation. Five years is a long time. That is the longest I think I've heard – um, Me too. In one of our cases for a attempt at rehabilitation. Yes. However, he was given officially the orders that he would be someone who would bring, quote, no further danger to others oh. when he was released. So obviously, Nor- or we wouldn't be here today, yeah. Norris <laughs> proved the prediction wrong. You don't say. Only three short months later, he was in Redondo Beach, and he was cruising the streets on a motorcycle. Of course, the wind is flowing through his His hair hair. Mm -hmm. that probably hasn't been kept real well. I'm guessing not. (laughs) When he spies a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant, she had just been fighting with her boyfriend, Such a vulnerable time. Picture the scene perfectly. Nora stopped. Offer her a ride on his hog. Oh gosh, the, the motorcycle love I the meant. Hog too. <laughs> the ladies cannot resist the hog, so she jumps on, doesn't she? No, actually, she declined. Oh, she t- declined. Okay. She did. Yep, she declined his hog. <laughs> and he probably didn't like that. Well, he was just like, "All right, we could have done it the easy way. We're gonna do it the hard way." Oh, so no. he leaps off his bike. He attacks her, strangles her into a semi-conscious state with her own scarf. Dazed, she could not resist him. So he drags her behind a nearby bush and freaking rapes her. Mm. Behind a goddamn bush. That's horrible. And it amazes me because when he acts, he doesn't even, it doesn't sound like he even cares about his surroundings. It's like the park, midday. This is broad daylight. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't... Behind a bush. Mm -hmm. Anyone could have walked by and been like, oh, big monster in the bushes or, nope, man raping woman. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah, that says something about his diagnosis. For sure. So police were unable to act because of her vague description of her attacker, of course, because she was strangled with her own scarf, you know, semi-unconscious. One month later, though... She saw him again, and she memorized his license plate number. Oh, good for her. Good on you. How hard would it have been to not, like, fully well, you just know, have she a probably, breakdown? Yeah. I mean, maybe she she probably did, but, but I'm glad But to be able to memorize that. his license plate number, that is one bad bitch right oh, there. Oh, for sure. And overcome what you know were trauma triggers immediately like, oh, we're from get seeing this him. Mm-hmm. Dirty SOB. Yep. And so he was convicted of forcible rape. And Good. he was shipped to the California men's colony. Okay. So he's so he's again there. In, in California. Isn't it just kind of I don't I don't know what word I want, but he does five years of in a rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And three months later three months. he's back out. Yep. Upping upping the ante. Yes, increasing because now he got away with the it was no longer attempted anything. Yep, he got away with that. Just well, I'm just chewing on that piece yep. over here. Honestly, the colony is easy compared to where he like could have been. Because in California, think about it, they have Folsom, they have San Quentin. We have we've covered lots of cases where people have been sent to San Quentin. Mm-hmm. So this is where Norris and Bitteker 
meet. Oh, this because, is the meeting place. Mm-hmm. Bedeker was also at the colony. And basically what happens is Norris starts to feel a tremendous loyalty to Bitteker because twice when they were in the colony, Bitteker saved Norris's life. Okay. So he basically explains to police later they have a prison code and I am indebted to him for the rest of my life because he saved it on two different occasions. I see. That's what he tries to claim as to why he ends up doing going along with Bitteker. But I think we can see, I think I've laid enough groundwork to show you that he was a violent criminal before ever before he ever met up with Bitteker. Yeah, yeah. I don't fully support that. I mean, I'm sure that that is probably why they continued to hang out after they got out. Oh, most definitely. But they were both into the same dark fantasy, you know, rape torture of women. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of their friendship, and they start to kind of see how much similarities they have into why they're both in prison at this time and whatnot, Mm -hmm. they kind of come up with this fun game or what they think is a fun game that they think it would be cool to select one victim for each teen year so 13 through 19 and to see how long they could keep each victim alive and screaming oh my gosh that was their plan wow that is how their friendship was solidified so i'm sorry but you can't tell me that Norris wasn't just as into the shit that Bitteker was when they're both agreeing to a plan yeah, like if that. If this pr- plan was presented to a normal person, I don't know that we would have, you know, the no. situation. But if I had been like, hey, Amber, let's start a true crime podcast. Also, do you oh, think I, that we could? I have this in my diary here. Yeah, let's do Let's this. do this, too. Right. So the fact that he's like, OK, mm-hmm. I'll do it. I mean. And was fully on board with mm-hmm. it. It wasn't a loyalty. No, it wasn't. What happens is Bitteker is paroled on November 15, 1978. He went back to Los Angeles where he found work as a machinist. Great. More tools. Yes. Norris was freed exactly two months later on January 15, 1979. He moved in with his mother in Los Angeles into a mobile community where the two were said to have had an ancestral relationship. Oh, okay. So plot twist here. Yes. That's neither here nor there. I just felt like it added a layer of ick. It really does add. Just a stinky. A filthy layer. Layer of ick to the whole story. Yes, and smelly. He used his Navy training to find work as an electrician. So we have a machinist and an electrician. They've got lots of toolboxes that come with their jobs. Good Lord. They wouldn't be on hideous hardware week for nothing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Bitteker wrote to Norris in February 1979 and arranged a rendezvous at a cheap downtown hotel because why would it be anything but? Mm-hmm. And it was over a couple of drinks there that they renewed their prison friendship and were like, hey, remember that funny, fun plan that we made up in prison? <laughs> oh, remember gosh, that one about that, that plan about teen for each year of life? Yeah, let's, let's do start it. it. What you doing on Thursday? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So here they go. They purchase a silver 1977 GMC cargo van. The van had its advantages. There were no side windows to worry about. There was a large sliding door on the passenger side. And if their intended victims decided to deter, you know, decided to reject their their ride in the van... They could just pull up real close, swing, you know, slide a door open, snatch them, them, and slide it back. Oh, yeah. 
These are the vans of nightmares. It is. But Lawrence, a.k.a. Larry, we've been here before on this podcast with a man named Lawrence. Yes, we have. Right at the beginning. This one's a shit stain, too. But he nicknames the van the Murder Mac. You know, I love me a good rhyme. Damn you, Lawrence, and your creativity. Fucking Lawrence. Murder Mac. So I, they're they're just like, let's get into the Murder, the murder Mac. Mac. Oh my gosh. Mm, I hate them. Icky. I want a cool name but, for my car too. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to have the name Murder in it, but. <laughs> yeah, I might want to skip that. I know, but it's, it is, it's, it's just bizarre how, how the their minds work. Yes. Like, yeah. As we're talking, just normal people. Are they doing that too? Like, oh. Yes. And also. The Murder Mac. The, to and, the Murder Mac. And then Norris is like, yes. It's you like know. on Scooby-Doo. When they're just like, to the mystery mach- yeah. mobile or machine. Yes. Right? Mystery machine? Yeah, mis- mystery machine. I think so. It's close enough. It's shit. Close. shit. But but there are people very disappointed enough because we couldn't remember <laughs> We might get some machine. messages. Mm-hmm. But no, it just, it, it's hard to wrap your brain around that. Is it normal talk? Is it like, right? because I often think of these types of people as monsters. And that's, I forget no. that they probably are having normal they conversations. They have senses of humor and stuff too. Yeah. 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 yeah it's it's yeah. crazy. We don't like to think of them as people. That's why. So so from February to June 1979, Bittaker and Norris cruised up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. They stopped at beaches, flirted with girls, often took some of their photos. Norris later estimated that they picked up to 20 prospects without harming one. Okay, so so this is carefully incalculated. Oh, for sure. Bittaker would later tell police that the day of June 24th, 1979, started innocently enough. Bittaker spent the night in the murder mac, as one does. Yes, one was just, just a Tuesday. <laughs> Why not? No big deal. Right. And he had it parked outside the trailer of Roy Norris as he was bumping his mom in there. You know, if the trailers Gave are them some rocking, privacy. don't yeah. come a-knocking, <laughs> That's Bittaker. respectful to give them their privacy. Yes. What a good friend. Holy. So he went ahead and slept in the murder yeah. mac. That's... That's BFF status right there. Yep. They had <laughs> creepily spent the morning of June 24th uh, working on a bed, just constructing a bed that Bittaker had constructed in the back of the van. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. just to make things more comfy for our murder. How nice. The bed was mounted on a frame with space beneath it to conceal a body. So, you know, they thought of everything. These dudes and their handiwork. Right. Just like, you know, what's-his-face Cameron Hooker yes. from our previous case. Use your carpentry skills for good. For something good. Not for murder, people. And concealing bodies. At about 11 a.m., they began their prowl. Mm. Bedeker described it as a, quote, nice Sunday to cruise around the beach area drinking beer, smoking grass, and flirting with girls. We had no set routine, end quote. So they're just day drinking? Yeah, just out there. I feel like they're like listening to a Florida Georgia Line song about summer days, just loving life. <laughs> yep, Florida Georgia Line all the way. <laughs> I mean, it's the perfect Blaring day. from the murder mat. Right. Like all the things they could have been doing on this lovely California yes. day. Yes. These random selection cases always give me the chills. Me too. It, it's like it could have been anyone. Yes. And that person that, that, that day. And that day. is the creepiest thing to me too because just as a as a woman walking oh God, around. Walking, just going to get your chai latte. Yeah. And, and bam, someone picks day. you up in the murder mac. Oh, I know. Uh, it's just terrifying. So they make their rounds. They're driving north and hitting all the stops between Redendo Beach and Santa Monica keeping an eye out for female hitchhikers. 
Oh, time and time again. We see this time and time again. I hate it. I hate it, guys. I'm so glad we've come a little bit farther than that. Sometimes they'd park the van and scout a stretch of sand on foot, which I'm like, why? Were you really going to kidnap a person on foot and walk back to the van and people aren't going to notice? Have you ever walked through the sand on foot? It is rigorous. (laughs) Like, why? Calf workout right there. Let alone carrying a whole nother body without people noticing and stopping for breaths and to stretch your calf. No. Especially after smoking grass and drinking beer. Oh, for sure. No, you're not trucking it with some. I think they were hoping to convince someone to come back to their van with them. I'm, I'm. That's just me assuming. Gotcha. So it's about 5 p.m. and they're going back to Redondo Beach when they find a likely target. No. Yes. Bitteker and Norris later actually argued over who was the first to notice 16-year-old Cindy Schaefer, which. What a gross thing to fucking yeah, argue I saw about. Her first. Jackasses. So she was a gorgeous little blonde girl. She was petite. That's their thing. Because select you know, petite right. women. Yes, yes, of course. Which, as a petite woman, just pisses me mm-hmm. off because you know that they're targeted because they're not. They don't seem like they're going to give a fight back. Like I'm I sorry, but that, yeah. the size of my thighs do not determine whether or not I'm going to fight for my life. <laughs> Thank you. I have teeth and nails, and a good headbutt. But they, from what you showed me, they don't look like they're the biggest. They're not men either. No, so they no. probably did select no vulnerable. As usual, they're just tiny dick little mother mm-hmm. buggers. Mm-hmm. So, 16 year old Cindy Schaefer was walking back to her grandmother's house after a Christian youth meeting at St Andrew's Presbyterian Church. How pure is that? That that just hurts even more. That is like the most innocent, pure thing that you could be walking Mm -hmm. for. The murder Mac pulls alongside and Norris offers her a ride. She declines. Good girl. As they all do. And she ignored the van as it trailed behind her. Oh, gosh. But then, of course, it swings. They (gasps) speed up and swing ahead of her and pull into a driveway and leave the motor idling, where Norris met her on the sidewalk, smiling, and repeats his offer. Now she alarm bells have to be going oh my off gosh. for her. And she just kind of, like, hurries past him. Roy Norris grabs her and muscles her into the van. The sliding door that they bought that van for worked perfectly, muffling her cries for help as Bitteker cranked up the radio's volume, which to me is also... The most horrific thing and that people do it all the time to muffle screams. Yeah. But what it must be doing to the anxiety and the senses oh my of the victim when you crank up the radio and now you've got that going plus all your adrenaline and fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's horrible. <clears throat> so Norris fought with Schaefer. I mean, she she tried to fight for her life and then um, sealed her lips with duct tape, bound her wrists and ankles. And one shoe was actually left on the sidewalk as the van sped oh. away. Bitteker actually wrote his memoirs from prison. As they often do. This is disgusting to me. I don't think it should be allowed because it's a way for them to get off on it all over again. I mean, I know we can't take their brain out of their head and make them not be able to remember all this, mm-hmm. so they they just replay it every day in their head anyway. But to be able to physically write this shit down grosses me out. Mm-hmm. 
So in his memoirs of the murder Mac, Bittaker recalled that throughout the whole experience, Cindy displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions and facts over which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming, end quote. Wow. I don't believe it for a second. Wow. You cannot tell me that that girl just she laid just there. accepted. Didn't cry. No. No. No one's just simply accepting that quickly that their life is about to be over. No. And not knowing what I think he was just trying to be a poetic jackass. Probably. So what he does is he drives to a mountain fire road. Okay. So there's like certain roads for fire. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Forest fire like type thing. So they go to a fire road. They park out of sight from the highway. They smoked weed and just questioned this poor 16-year-old little girl about her family until they were tired of these shenanigans and ordered her to strip. Mm. Bittaker left the van for about an hour or so, giving Norris some privacy. Then he came back, did his thing. So disgusting. It is. And I just don't, you know, we don't need to get into details. You guys know mm -hmm. what these two men did. I find it interesting that they, like, each gave each other privacy. Like, really? Like, how thoughtful to your BFF to, okay. oh my gosh, it just makes me sick. Like, you, you can murder someone together and mm -hmm. you can abduct someone together, but you can't see the, their naked ass. Like, right. What the fuck? So, anyway, months later, once they finally get caught, because, spoiler alert, they do, they each, like, argue and bicker over who insisted on... Cindy Schaefer dying, blaming the other one. Oh, wow. The blame game. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. Interesting that you say that because I actually title a section of this the blame game because that's what these two idiots That's what they do. do. Norris first tried to strangle Cindy, but he wasn't strong enough. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but to strangle somebody actually takes a lot of physical. force. Phys yes, physical effort. Mm -hmm. And like you said, these two men were not very big at all. He also just, like, couldn't handle it. So he left to go vomit in the weeds. And when he returned, Norris said that Bittaker was choking Schaefer. But... At that point in time, she was still alive, and he knew that because her body was still jerking, and she was still trying to breathe. This is horrible. Prepare yourself. Bittaker then handed Norris a wire coat hanger, and they twisted it around her neck, um, tightening the makeshift vice, okay? And they also used vice grip pliers to mm. continue to tighten it, hence why they're called the toolbox killers. And I won't say this, but this one time... The other reason, and you can look up the grisly details of their sexual abuse on their victims, they actually use these pliers not only to um, tie wire, coat hanger wire, to kill their victims, but they also take parts off from the victim with the pliers. I'm yeah. just, I just don't need to go there. Yeah. And they also rape the victims with the pliers. Ugh. You guys can picture all the horrible things if you want. I don't feel like it needs to come out of my mouth. But that is how they got their name, the Toolbox mm. Killers. What they do next is they wrap her body in a plastic shower curtain, and they drove back along the fire road until they found a deep canyon, and they dumped, they, her. Yep, they dumped her. Her body has never been recovered. Wow. Yep. I'm amazed by, by that because, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was a very, very deep canyon. I'm not sure what, what it looked yeah. like, but... 
you know, just the, they carelessly dumped it. You would think there would be a chance of it being found, but who knows what happened after that. And what they actually do is, you know, this fire road that I mentioned, they, those have gates on them with locks. Well, they cut the lock and put their own lock on it. Oh, wow. So that they weren't ever surprised by someone showing up. And this is where they continue to bring back their victims. So they kind of blocked it off and protected this road so they could use it. Right. Time and time again. Jeez. Okay. So next. So that's Cindy Schaefer. So Bitteker and Norris went hunting again on Sunday, July 8th, 1979. Now, the last Cindy Schaefer was June 24th. So not a very long cooling off period here for these two idiots. In early afternoon, they saw a likely prospect. But a white convertible pulls up in front of them. This this girl was hitchhiking. And this white convertible picks the girl up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they're all ticked off because they wanted her. And Someone now else this, picked her up. Yep. And, now this white convertible oh gets her. So they're so agitated that actually what they do is they follow the white convertible, waiting for her to be dropped off. That is insane. And they didn't have to wait very long. They just took her just a little ways. The convertible's driver signaled for an exit ramp ahead, breaking first to deposit his passenger on the berm. She And she, immediately she sticks her thumb out, waiting for the next ride. Oh, wow. So Norris had actually left the murder max passenger seat and threw himself under the raised bed in the back. <gasps> Remember the conceal Ew, the body Yes, yes. Thing? The creepy bed in the yep. back. This was a little bit different than their previous strategy they thought that just one guy driving a van would look less threatening Mm. so that's why he did it okay and it worked because andrea hall she was 18 jumps into the passenger seat she was also a beautiful petite blonde girl Mm. only about five seven she was super thankful for the ride she introduces herself to bitteker and as he pulls back into traffic gratefully accepts his offer for a cold drink hall went to fetch it from the cooler in the rear of the van because he's like yeah you know i've got got stuff in the the cooler Uh yeah she chose a soda and turned back toward her seat and that's when norris lunged from his hiding spot swept her legs out from under her they of course wrestle Mm -hmm. in the on the floor of the murder mac and once again Bitteker turns up the music and drove on. Can you imagine how? Oh, I don't want to imagine, but like that is just horrifying. Mm-hmm. And they actually did, both of them did say that Hall felt, uh, fought like hell for her life. And I, whenever that her. is noted about a victim, I always want to say it. Like, just the world needs to know that they did not just lay down. That yeah, they, they fought. fought and fought. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Norris was stronger, but also he bound her. Like, You know, he's not making the fight fair here. No. Twisted her arms behind her back till she finally surrendered, and he bound her wrists and ankles uh, and covered her mouth with tape. So they go back to that same location where they had taken Schaefer, and at this location, she was sexually abused by both of them. But while that was happening, Norris saw what he believed to be vehicle headlights approaching. Bitteker clasped his hands over Hall's mouth and dragged her to nearby bushes as Norris drove in like he drove the van away just to kind of search for the vehicle see you know what's going on so in the meantime he's got her you know Bitteker's got her in these bushes Mm -hmm. Norris says when he returned when he returned they get her back in the van but they drove her to a location farther up the San Gabriel Mountains okay not the same they're no longer in the same spot as they Mm -hmm. were with Schaefer Bitteker forced Hall to walk uphill naked alongside the road, and then she was forced to perform fellatio on him before 
ordering her to pose for several Polaroid pictures. Which, fucking with the pictures all the time with the pictures, you sickos. This poor girl. Mm -hmm. Then they drove Hall to a third location where Bitteker again walks Hall up a nearby hill. And this time, as Norris drove to a nearby store, he purchases alcohol. So now, like, once again, Bitteker is left alone with the victim. Mm -hmm. And Norris is just... Going to live his best life. We're going to go get some alcohol. This calls for drinks. Yeah. So he goes and gets alcohol, you know, gets some beer. And he said when Norris returned, Bitteker was alone and in possession of two more Polaroid pictures that he had taken of Hall, both of which depicted Hall's face in expressions that Norris later described as being of sheer terror as she was begging for her life, of course. Bitteker informed Norris that he had told Hall he was going to kill her and challenged her to give him as many reasons as she could come up with as to why she should be allowed to live. Then, and this is gruesome and brutal, he, after she gave her reasons, which Bitteker deemed not good enough, he hit her in the ear into her brain with an ice pick. Oh my gosh. I know. That's a serious escalation. We went from strangulation to ice pick. Yeah. Um then he turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear. Oh my gosh, this poor girl. That is hard. I know it was grisly. Andrea Hall's body was never found. So now we're going to make our way to Labor Day, September 3rd. So we're Almost a two-month cooling-off period at this point. They're in um, Hermosa Beach. They spotted two girls seated on a bench at a bus stop where um, Pier Avenue actually meets the Pacific Coast Highway. The two girls were 15-year-old Jackie Gillum and 13-year-old Jacqueline Leah Lamp, who's better known as uh, Leah Lamp, okay? Mm -hmm. They were waiting for the bus. They seemed happy to accept a ride with no special destination in mind. They're just cruising around. And I actually meant to say that they weren't waiting for the bus. They were just sitting at the bus stop. Oh, gotcha. Just hanging out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They were decided to take Bitteker and Norris up on their offer to help, to smoke a doobie with them. They're 15 mm-hmm. and 13, you know, and like, oh, we've got weed. Sure, oh, we'll share some with yeah, you. Yeah, I get it. They all smoked some weed. And Bitteker was like, yeah, we're going to head to the beach. Well, Jackie and Leah challenged him a few moments later, like, um, you're turning away from the ocean. We're not going towards the beach. Mm -hmm. What's going on? She's like, oh, no, I'm just looking for a safe place to park while we get high. Like, we'll have to walk farther to the beach, but we're still going to the beach. Well, then the girls really protested when Bitteker parked near a suburban tennis court. Leah started to open the door, but Norris was faster, swinging a sawed-off baseball bat against her skull. (gasps) Why sawed-off? Why can't we just have the full baseball bat? What the hell? Oh, my gosh. Makes it worse that so it's sawed off. They just, like, got right to it then. Yes. A fierce struggle ensued. Bitteker waded in to help Norris because, you know, this is two victims instead of one. Yeah. So he fin- they finally subdued both of the girls, tied their wrists, tied their ankles, duct tape over the mouth mm-hmm. as usual. Only when they were secured in silence did Bitteker notice that several tennis players were watching from nearby courts. Oh, finally someone witnesses their careless acts that they do in the middle of Yep. Public. They were worried that someone might call the police. Bitteker, like, sped away. He's piecing out of there toward their hideout in the San Gabriel Mountains. But no one called the police. (gasps) 
The witnesses returned to their tennis games. Oh, my god! Completely dismissing this struggle that was a hell of a struggle. You know the van was rocking and, like, there oh, were noises. it had to have been with all of those people yep. struggling around in the mm-hmm. back or wherever they were. And you know they could have heard children's voices. These are 15 and 13-year-old wow. girls. Wow. And they're just like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm in an intense tennis match. Can't get, no get time. to the phone right now. Yep. That's really mind-blowing to me. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you see something suspicious, report it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get involved, well, but we've report we've seen it. a couple of these, too, where people didn't report what they saw for a long time, like years, and that could have been such crucial information yes, at the time, exactly. Too. So Bitteker and Norris kept their latest hostages alive for nearly two days. Oh, my gosh. They kept an audio tape of their mis- horrible, horrible things that they did in torture. So I gave you some snippets of what they do with the tools mm-hmm. and whatnot. And yes. so that's the torture that I am I am referring to. They were bound and gagged between repeated incidences of sexual and physical abuse. Both men slept in the van alongside both of the girls. Ew. I know. How freaking creepy. And they took turns like being the lookout. On one occasion, Bitteker walked uh, Leah Lamp onto a nearby hill and forced her to pose for pornographic pictures before returning her to the, returning her to the van. Bitteker also asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself with Jackie Gillum. Both like, nude. Hey, let's get a pic. Yeah, time for a selfie. Gross. Both nude and clothed. Ew. Right? These poor girls. These poor little girls. In the first three incidences in which Bitteker sexually molested Jackie Gillum, he also created a tape recording of himself, forcing the girl to pretend that she was his cousin. Mm. She had to role play Mm -hmm. that she was his cousin that he had a sexual obsession with. Mm -hmm. I have no words. And he told Gillum, like it's on the audio tape, that she could feel free to express her pain. He liked that. Yeah. Yep, that's all in the audio. There are transcripts of the audio online if you want to see them. I do not recommend them. Bitteker also tortured Jackie Gillum by stabbing her breasts with the ice pick. Because mm. he likes, he prefers to use an ice pick. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, clearly he's got some sick thing with the ice pick. Yes, and he uses the pliers to tear off different parts of her body. Yeah. Tired of the game and running dangerously late for work... Bitteker repeated his trick with the ice pick, stabbing them in both ears. And so that's like a sick thing, clearly, to. Yeah. They pitched them both off the cliff. February 9th, 1980, the skeletalized bodies of Lamp and Gillum were found at the bottom of the canyon alongside a dry riverbed with the ice pick still embedded in Jackie Gillum's skull. They could confirm that they were those girls because the ice pick was still in Jackie's skull. That was like the significant. They, yep. As they said that it should be there. Mm. Mm -hmm. And there's more grisly details about the torture that these two went through that I just don't feel like we need to verbalize Mm -hmm. here for them. They they definitely got it the worst. Not that any of it is ever good, but these two really, really suffered at their hands. These poor children and I... (sighs) They are. They are children. They're They're babies. They're 15 and 13. And I think about their families Mm -hmm. and and finding these things out. Mm -hmm. It's just... Well, right. When their remains are found, there's no way to unknown what they they went through. Yeah. You can never unknow it and Mm -mm. to live with that. Oh, my gosh. So on Sunday, September 30th, they decide to find another victim and they find Shirley Sanders. And she is an Oregon resident visiting her father in Manhattan Beach. When she declined a lift in the murder Mac, 
which, you know, it's a, a trend. Of, yeah, it yeah, is a trend. A lot of them have good instincts for that. However, they sprayed Sanders with chemical mace and drug her kicking and screaming from the sidewalk into their van. So they're just becoming more disgusting and doing... They are because they raped her. Both of them raped her right there in the van. Oh, my god! They didn't even drive to their road. So wow. now they're escalating and getting careless. Uh-huh. Sanders reported the assault because she got away. Oh, yay. Uh-huh. Thank the Lord she got away. However, she could not identify her assailants. She did not remember the license plate. And unable to pursue the matter further, she returned to Oregon. Oh, darn it. I know. The next month was really, like, intense for Bitteker and Nor- Norris because they were worried that the police might come for them at any moment. Mm-hmm. Bitteker found a new apartment in Burbank while Norris remained with his mother so he could so keep they separated. duping her. So he could keep sleeping mm-hmm. with his mother. Okay. The killers began to relax as the weeks passed without any sign of police attention. So on Halloween night, as if that night's not creepy enough, mm-hmm. they decide... To go, to go hunting again. again. This time, though, they deviated from their beach routine and went on the prowl on residential streets uh, in Sunland and the San Fernando Valley. They spotted 16-year-old Lynette Ledford hitchhiking and offering offered her a ride. She happily accepted their offer. And when they offered her a joint, she said no. She turned it down. Oh, good for her. She did. There we go. But it didn't matter because within five minutes, Norris wrestled her to the ground of the murder mag. Bitterker chose not to waste any time driving to their typical spot in the mountains, though. They decided that they could rape and torture um, Ledford just as well when they drove around the suburbs of Los Angeles. Oh, wow. So they're now doing, like, mobile torture. They are. In their... Yes. In their murder mac. Jesus. But, so Norris takes the driver's seat so that Bitteker could do his thing, turns on the tape recorder, of course, and went to work with their typical bullshit, mm-hmm. as I'll call it. So this one is really different, though, because they the in the tape recordings, they started by initially, like, slapping and mocking her. And then, oh. I know, which, fucking bullies? That like, what the hell? just, like, hate them so much. It's just, I don't know. on a deeper level. Yes, like, what the fuck? You're the jackasses that had to kidnap her and bind her so she has no chance. And you're going to mock her? Like, it really? It takes it to this, like, horrible level of... You know, now you're just showing such a degrading. Right. You know, this person's about to, their life is going to end and you're just right. bringing it to such a horrible level. Ugh. Gross. Also, they're beating her with with fists and they're and Bitteker's repeatedly shouting for her to say something. Because he wants her voice on the recorder. That's where he, you know, oh, so he can, so he can get a sick this. jollies. Mm-hmm. And finally, Ledford is like, you know, what do you want me to say? And he's like, don't you like to scream? You need to scream louder. Like a person can only scream as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So then she just starts repeatedly saying like, no, don't touch me. Those kinds of things. Because he's screaming at her to talk. And mm-hmm. she, you know, I mean, that must have been so confusing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and the tapes and the transcripts of the tapes are just really horrible. So I'm going to gloss through like I did for the two teenagers before of just what all of that entails. And I don't think that I mentioned this, but in the previous two girls, they also used a sledgehammer 
as part of the way to torture them. Well, they bring it out for Ledford as well. And um, like as he reached for the sledgehammer, you can hear her on the recording yelling, oh, no, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Instead of hitting her in the head or anything like that, he just struck her in the left elbow. And so then she she's on the tapes like, you just broke my elbow. What? What are you doing? So even doing? in her like moment of horror, she's still confused. Like, what the hell are you doing? Yes, yes, yes. And basically what ends up happening, and she's like, don't hit me again. Like, mm. stop. You know, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And Norris proceeds to strike her, from what they can tell, at least 25 consecutive times upon the same elbow. What the hell? 25 times in the elbow. It's like he, I, I don't even, like, I don't I, even know. Uh, right, right. I got nothing. Of course, she's now at this point, like, screaming, why? Like, uh, yeah. why? What is going yeah. on? This, I mean, all the tapes are, are really awful. And I only saw the transcripts. Mm-hmm. I could never listen to the tapes, no, but I can't never. imagine being in court. I mean, they played all these tapes. Yeah. This was all evidence used against them. Yeah. Oh, the traumatization of the jurors to have oh my to gosh. listen I, to these no. screams. My my brain cannot Mm-mm. process how, like, you would never be the same after that. They kept her in ca- captivity for about two hours and then ended her life by strangling her with a wire coat hanger, which he tightened with the pliers, in a further just gross move. Because remember, they're just driving around the suburbs doing this. Mm-hmm. There's no cliffs to throw their bodies off like they had the other victims. They just decided to randomly put her on a lawn, just oh on a gosh. nice wow. landscaped lawn. Like out in someone's yard? Yes. Oh my gosh. They just left her in a selected, a randomly selected house in Sunland where just on a bed of ivy. No, this just tells me that they're, it's like almost they want the recognition for it or they want to get caught or something. I d- you know, but I it's know. it's hard just to tell. Right. Like, I mean. Their psychosis is continuing and escalating mm-hmm. at this point. Ledford's body was found by a jogger the following morning. An autopsy revealed, in addition to have been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to her face, head, breasts, and left elbow, where there was multiple fractures mm-hmm. of her elbow, of course. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by Bitteker having used pliers. Her left hand bore a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. Those might have been defensive mood, mood you know, wounds Mm -hmm. as well. Bitteker would later claim that the tape recording the pair had had created of Ledford's clear abuse and torture was nothing more than evidence of a threesome. Oh, what? Okay. Yep. That's one messed up threesome, sir. Well, especially because at the end of the tape, she's begging for them to kill her. So no... Your little sick act of this was all just role play. It was a role play threesome. Mm -hmm. Nope. I am sorry. But does he really think that he is such a good liar that people aren't going to be able to hear that and know the difference between somebody role playing and somebody truly begging for their life? Exactly. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that piece of information disgusted me so much because it's like he really is that delusional that people would believe that. Mm -hmm. That he would say that as his defense? Oh, no, that's a threesome. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, what a twisted, twisted thing to say or try to spin. So basically the reason that they chose a yard at random to discard her body is because they wanted to see what would happen when her corpse was discovered. Because at this point in time, none of the other victims have been discovered okay. because they were 
putting them over cliffs. Yeah, yeah. So they just wanted to see. So at first, Los Angeles was really shocked, but this the finding of her body came just days after the arrest of the hillside strangler, Angelo I don't know. Bono? I have heard of the Hillside Strangler before, but I'm not sure of how to say his name. The police said that they were unaware of any of of Bono's other victims, and there were missing girls and women, of course, on the books, but who could say if they were, you know, dead or alive at this point? But they were so basically what's happening here is that there was just a little bit of confusion. Like, wait a second. We just caught him a couple of days ago. So was he so working with this? someone mm-hmm. and, and, you know, he really did do this act, but then somebody discarded her later. So it took it took till the autopsy and whatnot for them to kind of figure out, oh, wait, this was not his mm-hmm. work. This was somebody else. This is when Ledford really was the one that spoiled it for them, that brings oh, them okay. down. Okay. Them leaving her on the front lawn and them really being able to examine the body and yeah. whatnot. She was actually the second 16-year-old that Bittaker and Norris had murdered. Leaving, remember they wanted to do like the ages, one of yes. each, yep, teen yes. age. So now they're just kind of cooling off, waiting, seeing what's going on with the news hitting. And of course, at first they're pissed off because somebody else was getting the quote credit, mm-hmm. the hillside strangler, yeah, it's, instead of them. You really get the sense that they wanted that credit for what they did. Yeah, oh, they absolutely did because Roy Norris starts running his mouth. Get you every time. Do. By October 1979, he had started bragging to another friend from prison that he caught back up with, Jimmy Dalton, emphasizing his role as a criminal mastermind. Dalton thought that it was all talk until Ledford's body was found. Oh, wow. He called his lawyer, and they both went to the Los Angeles police. LA's well, good finest, job, sir. Right? LA's finest listened to Dalton's story, then passed him to the detectives in Hermosa Beach, where Ledford's body had been discarded, of course. That is some really morbid catching up with my old prison pal talk. Like, hey, guess yeah, what I've guess been what doing? I've been doing. And and this is where when got the autopsy results and everything of Ledford's body, it matched exactly with what the bragging Dalton had told the police that he had been told by Norris. Wow. So they're like, wonderful. How okay, is the he story is lining up? Exactly. Like, there's some truth to it. So police made their move two days before Thanksgiving, 1979. They arrested Norris for a parole violation on the marijuana charge because they tailed him for a while. Oh. Saw him dealing in some drugs and we're like, here, this is how we can get Okay. Him. Like we can yep. get him in this way. For Bitteker, they jailed him on suspicion of kidnapping and raping of Shirley Sanders. Norris waived his right to counsel and sparred with the interrogators for a while. Eventually, he crumbled, though, casting himself as a reluctant accomplice to murders planned and carried out by Bitteker. The prison code demanded that he go along for the ride, Norris insisted. After all, he owed Bitteker his life. Mm, yeah, there was that loyalty. Mm-hmm. So he's just like, what was I supposed to do? Blah, blah, blah. So as Norris confessed, both men were charged with five counts of first-degree murder, plus a- additional charges of kidnapping, robbery, rape, defiant sexual assault, and criminal conspiracy. Each defendant tried to blame the other for the most heinous acts, of course. It's his fault. No, it's his fault. Norris claimed that he had been high on drugs most of the time, unable to resist Bitteker. But the audio tapes told a different story. Well, we don't care, Norris, because you're a liar. For sure. And we have you on tape. Yeah. Jackass. Participating actively. And and it did. It revealed him as a full participant. He would have to do more to avoid the death penalty. In February 1980, Norris led Detective Bynum 
Steve Kay and members of the um, Sierra Madre search and rescue team on a tour of the San Gabriel murder sites. They found Leah Lamp and Jackie Gillum with Bitteker's ice pick, like I said, still in Gillum's ear, mm. but no trace was ever found of Cindy Schaefer or Andrea Hall. They were lost forever. Oh, wow. But Norris had delivered enough evidence to clinch his plea bargain, so he didn't get the death penalty. I'm just going to briefly go over for you the trial. I mean, you know these heinous acts that they did yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. The prosecutor was was committed to seeking the death penalty for Loris, Lawrence Bitteker. All right. Norris, Roy Norris, had gotten out of the death penalty because he cooperated with the police. Right, he confessed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he led them to the bodies that he could. So he was found guilty. He got life in prison. All right. But the prosecutor's like, I want the death penalty for Bitteker. There was a lot of, there's a lot of trial jargon that you can find online where they're appealing things and trying to determine whether or not he was especially heinous and all this stuff, which yeah. absolutely he was. But then there's the mental health piece of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, which there is quite a trail on him. Yes. Saying and, that he will get worse. Yes. He will, you know. His diagnosis got worse. Yep. And they had all that previous information about all both of these men's previous jail time and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's little to no doubt that they were going to get sentenced for life, but they wanted the death penalty for Bitteker. There was appeal after appeal, but basically Bitteker was also found guilty on five counts of murder and 21 other related felonies. And long story short, they never got out. Oh, good. Thank, thank you, sweet little baby, and yes. Jesus, because I couldn't handle it if they did. Right. Lawrence Bitteker did not die by the state of California. He died of natural causes in San Quentin, December 13th, 2019. And then not long at all afterwards, Lou Norris died February 24th, 2020. That is amazing that they spent that much time in prison and they died so close together. I know. Yeah, exactly. Like, did they ever have contact? No. Um, Thank you. No, but this is a gross detail. Bitteker did write his memoirs mm-hmm. from prison, yes. okay? And it actually goes into detail if you look all this up about how he wanted his death sentence to be to wait until he finished his memoirs and all this stuff. Like I said, there's a lot Bitch, more please. about that part, but I was not going to waste our listeners' time talking about all their ridiculous fights for freedom and to not die of the death penalty and all this shit because they don't deserve any extra time a day. He was, Bitteker was sentenced to death on March 24th, 1981. Oh, wow. He just never was Never made it between all of the appeals and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But here's a gross detail. Whenever he would like write from prison, he would sign his letters with the nickname Pliers. Oh. How fucking grotesque is that? That's just, yeah, that's so insulting. I feel like as soon as that was noticed, he... Memoirs are over, sir. Yeah. Wrap it up. You never should be able to write again when you're that disgusting. Mm -hmm. I agree. Norris was originally sentenced to a term of 45 years to life, but he never got out. I'm so glad they never got out. No, I know. Me too. Because if this was... I I wouldn't be able to handle it if this was a case where they did. So they had five victims, lots of other potential victims I'm even so too. there weren't any more than five five mm-hmm. is enough it, well and that's like, what they got away with killing yeah there was other children. assault victims and yeah whatnot. yeah they were assaulting before yeah um the murders too. committing murder yeah <sighs> so that is 
an abridged version of the toolbox killers. Like I said, there are more grisly details if you're into that thing or into that, but I know not all of our listeners care to hear all of or your co-host or my co-host. Yeah, I don't need to make <laughs> She's her a little cry baby any more than I usually do. <laughs> right, each recording. So there's that. Uh, it's not for lack of research. It's just for lack of of needing to um, even say those things out loud. Anyway, let's move on to cleansing your gray matter, Please. ma'am. Yes. Okay. So I have just a quick little nugget for you. I love nuggets. The title of the article is "How About a Date?" Oh, yeah. Innocent. I'm enough, intrigued. Right? So in 2009, we're in Columbus, Ohio. Diana Martinez was robbed in her home one day, which is terrifying. That's horrible. Yeah. But even worse, two hours later, one of the robbers returned to ask her out on a date. <laughs> when love shows up, you don't you don't turn it down. You, you don't. I like so the police arrested Stefan Bennett, 22, on her doorstep. <laughs> So yeah. did he, like, was he a masked burglar or I'm assuming not? It doesn't say. Was she like, you just tried to rob me, sir, so For I'm going to sure. call the police? She, the, the article said that she recognized him right away when he returned and was able to have her cousin call 911. Oh, my God. Diana was lucky that the robber was so lovestruck. The last thing that you want is to have a robber return to the scene of the crime. Right. I love how he was, like, sizing her up while he was yeah, robbing like, her. Yeah, like, give me stuff, but she's cute. Damn, break me off a piece of that. Wonder what she's doing later. I'm just thankful that she didn't say yes because so she is quoted in the article to say it never happened. Okay, no. good, good. Because you just never know these days, uh, right? Right. Like, oh, you know what? You're oh, that's cute so too. Sweet. You got to get a job he's so a, you're not robbing women. Yeah, he's but you stealing cute. from me, but he has feelings for sure. And he's yeah. cute. No, okay. So nope, she no, said she no. Was not, she wasn't <laughs> flattered, but I just. Where his mind must have been. Yeah. That he's like, oh, she fine. Give me all your shit. But, but can also, we go out sometime? Yeah, yeah. Here's I'll, my number. I'll return if we go out. <laughs> half of my stuff might become your stuff anyway. So, right? you know. You could have it back. Yeah, yeah. What oh. the fuck? He's like thirsty for this girl simultaneously while he's robbing her. Yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. But I am glad that she didn't say yes. So there oh, you have too. it. There's that was a delicious little tidbit. Thank you. Uh, it Just when you think you've heard it all. Yep. Every there time. There it is. Every, Every time. time. So, yeah, guys, follow us on the socials. If you'd like to join our Patreon, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. There's a link for it on our website, crimecuriouspodcast.com. And you can write us at crime, crimecurious at yahoo.com if you have theme suggestions, case suggestions, just want to chat us up. We're there. We're available. So talk yes. to us. Share us if you feel so inclined. That, that small tidbit actually helps us a lot. Yes. We like so sharing. We do. That would be wonderful. All right. But until then, we hope you keep it curious. We hope you keep listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye.